This is Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. As America's zone coach, premier thought leader, and the world's number one coach of champions, Jim Fannin is the go-to person. He has guided the careers of the best pro athletes from 10 sports and business executives from 50 industries. He has coached individuals, families, relationships, and students in simplifying and balancing their lives for more than 40 years. From winning Wimbledon, the World Series, and a gold medal, to losing 68 pounds, saving lost marriages, or overcoming financial ruin, Jim Fannin has been behind the scenes guiding individuals through the intricate process of peak performance. His success tools are not just for the superstar. They're designed to help you reach your full potential as you tap into life's most successful mindset, the zone. And now, please welcome the coach of champions and America's zone coach, Jim Fannin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jim Fannin Show. I'm Jim Fannin. My name is Seth, Jim's sidekick and producer here on uh, one of the best weeks of the year. Can't we say that? Uh, on America's <laughs> Most Positive Podcast? Uh, uh, July 4th week. Uh, Wimbledon uh, tennis uh, has started already this week. Uh, yeah, it's a great week. And and, and we're at the end of the uh, uh, first half of the year. Uh for everyone that listened last week, 92 days to have your greatest third quarter ever, and uh, hopefully you're ready to have your greatest July ever, but we're right in the middle of it. That, uh, that episode really did kick my tail. I went back and actually just sat with a spreadsheet and looked at the next three months and uh, did more in planning, more analysis than I've ever done before on a period of time like that, even though we just did have your best you know, second quarter of the year. I just learned some more this time around off of that episode. And, you know, week one, I'm already seeing a very tangible I, I, results. I think the real reason uh, you're going to be a new father, you're freaking out. You're trying, <laughs> you're, you're trying to, I, I need to grow up. I need to become a dad. There is something to that. <laughs> I, think, you, I think that helps you really plan a little better. Oh, my goodness. You get a little more, uh, you get a little more focused. Yes, that's for sure. Yes, there's no question about it. We, we've got a fantastic guest coming up here in just a bit. Uh, if you don't know much about the tennis world, uh, Wimbledon is magic in a lot of ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jim's been there. Peter Fleming, who is a doubles partner for John McEnroe and uh, is, uh, you know, a pretty renowned broadcaster over in England is uh, going to be joining us from across the pond. And this whole thing really is just such a, a beautiful event in the sports and cultural world. Yeah, Wimbledon's special. I remember the first time I was there, I was in awe of it because, you know, I'd read about it as a kid and, uh, so to go there, uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty uh, awe-inspiring to say the least. Yeah, Wimbledon special. They will consume like they did last year, seventy-five thousand pounds of strawberries. <laughs> I did not know that. Strawberries until and this cream. Year. Yeah. yeah, it's a big deal. So that is that is a, a big part of what you you come to Wimbledon for. Champagne, uh, strawberries, and cream, and uh, watch a little lawn tennis. I, I was actually going to ask if you if you got a snack ever between matches. Uh, you know, strawberries and cream, but hopefully not the champagne because that, uh, that can't help your. Yeah, your that's serve. that's probably not a, that's probably not a good idea. So, Jim, what's on your mind this week? Well, hopefully you had a great Fourth of July. And um, what's on my mind? Independence is on my mind. I tell you something, Seth. You know, 
in the last couple of months, uh, I've traveled cabs, Uber, St. Louis, New York, Chicago, Seattle. And all that time, I encountered no American drivers. And I thought, huh, that's kind of strange. So one, one guy that uh, drove me around in New York uh, was from Ethiopia. Another that I met was from the Ukraine. And I'm always trying to engage and ask them, you know, what, what do they want to accomplish in the next 60 months? I ask a lot of people that question. Um, and I like to find out and, and learn about different cultures and where people are from. One guy was from Pakistan, another from Nigeria, another from Ghana. So the interesting thing, though, in the last couple of months, these are men that chauffeured me around with a master's degree in biology, one of them. Another had a master's degree in chemistry. Another was a doctorate to be in electrical engineering. And another had a bachelor's degree in psychology and was pondering going back and getting his master's. And I thought, wow, why? Why did men of such scholar, scholarly substance, why were they driving a cab? Why, why were they driving Uber? And why no American drivers? Although there are American drivers driving Uber uh, never before. Uh, that's true. But is the job too menial? Uh, it, was it the pay, the potential danger, the long hours that were deterrents for the men of the red, white, and blue? Why so many foreign uh, men that I encountered uh, driving. So, you know, the one thing that was common was the men that drove me throughout the country, every one of them had a vision because I asked them, what's your vision? And that vision was stoked years ago in their native countries. So here's some quotes. I always wanted to come to America since I was a little boy. Another one, quote, America is a place where you can exercise free will. And when he said that, that stopped me right then mentally in my tracks. Free will. And then another, laughingly, uh, said, if you understand the system and you work harder than the Americans, which is not that hard to do, you can make it here. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's interesting. But I kind of knew this. Free will. And that's what 4th of July is. It's about independence. And we just had that holiday, and a lot of us are celebrating it the entire week. Free will. I, I believe, Seth, it's the single most prized possession of all mankind. Free will. You can think anything you want. It, it can lead us through hardship. It can take us through anguish. It'll help us when we're confronted by any kind of challenge or obstacle. And it can definitely uh, help you realize your dream, no matter what that dream is. So we've got a free will. We can choose poverty or riches. And in my formative years, birth to six, we were in definite poverty. We were well below the poverty line. I chose riches. We have options on our moods and our feelings. So, you know, I can be feeling awesome. I can upgrade my hello 
and give that upgraded, I'm awesome. Even maybe when I'm not feeling physically at my best. But I have free will to say that to whoever I meet. We can be a boss or we can have a boss. We can reinvent ourselves. We've had a show on that, but you can reinvent yourself right this second. You can hang up right now and go reinvent your life, create your own blueprint. We can think negative. We can think positive. We can go physically exercise, or I can go lay in a hammock and be complacent. We can smile, or I can frown. I have a choice. I can choose my mate, my significant other, uh, the town physically where I'm going to live, the climate. I want to live. I can choose my vocation, how I dress, how I color my hair, my vocabulary, what slang I want or not want. And I can choose my education. And like mom always told me, you can choose your friends, but you better choose wisely. Free will. That's the American way. It is the American way. And so that's been on my mind. You know, the lure of opportunity brought every one of those cabbies and men that drove me around America. Uh, It was the lure of opportunity. They chose that job because of the flexible hours, the pay, and the freedom, really, that it gave them uh, to pursue their educational ambitions. Free will did that. One man will leave his family behind in another country and smile at the future. And another, he's going to sit in his chair watching TV, bitch moan and complain about the past. I hope you had an awesome 4th of July. But if you take anything out of this week, exercise free will. That's the American way. We have a choice. Now, that's been on my mind for a few days, Seth. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I I think that it's very easy. And one of the things I love so much about this show, it's very easy to kind of think, oh, well, you know, I guess it just can't change. Reinvention is always right there. You know, another thing I'd like to do right now with everyone listening, uh, let's just have a chill moment. You know, we don't take those chill moments where we unplug our brain, shut our eyes, unhinge our jaw, let our tongue just kind of float in our mouth, and turn your brain off. Chill out. Get your breathing down to six to eight breaths a minute. Long inhale, long exhale, and just have that mindset, there's no place I'd rather be than where I am right now. No future, no past, just breathe. We have free will to do that. You know, the average person, Seth, has two, 3,000 thoughts a day. And when you have that wacky, crazy, out-of-control day, it's like the tail wagging the dog, you know. You can get up into 3,000 thoughts, and your mind's just scurrying from one corner uh, to the other in your brain. And you're flipping in and out of future and past, and you're thinking about challenges with maybe your home life, with a kid you're raising, you know. Uh, or, or a job, or, or your career, or you look in the mirror and you don't like how you look, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, I haven't seen my toes in, you know, five months. I, I think I'm gaining way too much weight. You can get into that rut with a lot of negative thoughts. What do you do? Well, my, my first thing I, 
I would love for you to do, chill out. Just, just breathe. Breathe. Get into the moment. It's the person that lives here in this zone, purposeful, calm mindset. And you block out all the noise from the news, from the neighbors, from your family, and just block it out. And just be in the moment. You have free will to chill. And that should be our motto free will to chill. I've got free will to not think, not overthink. And we're going to learn from Peter Fleming about how the best in the world don't overthink it. That has been an amazing, uh, you know, string of interviews that we've had in 2018. And Jim, I know you saw this pretty early on in your career too. Everybody's saying from childhood athletes uh, to professionals, everybody's overthinking. They're overly technical and they're in their own heads, be it golf or hockey or tennis or whatever. Or business. Or business. Yeah. They're in their own head and they're they're thinking too technically. Even relationships, and, uh, you know, drama. We overthink pretty much everything. I, uh, that's oh. been the American way definitely recently. I, I think the collective thoughts of the hundreds of millions of Americans, I bet the quantity of thoughts collectively, every person in the United States, I bet the quantity has gone up in the last uh, 24, 36 months more than ever. I also believe that as Americans, we're thinking more about the past and the future than we are living in the moment. And we have free will to block out negative past and not replay it. We got free will to only think of the future in the most positive way, but we have free will to be in the moment. You mentioned early on in someone's life, you know, I got a little grandson now, he's he's about eight months old. In fact, he is eight months old, exactly, eight (laughs) months in a day. He will have from birth to five, so in the first 60 months of his life, he will have the same amount of quantity of thought and the same amount of percentage of his thoughts in the moment as the best athlete in the world clicking on all cylinders. Again, the average person has two, three thousand thoughts every day, and that is rising. It's not decreasing. But when you're at your best, you've already created a blueprint. And so you're operating on a blueprint. That's already done. And now you've already seen the blueprint manifest in your mind. Now you just walk on that blueprint as if it's so fully engaged. From birth to five, you'll learn more in that 60 months than you will learn the rest of your life accumulative. That's a shocking stat. We discovered that in 1974. From birth to five, you learn more in that. 60 months, then you will learn the rest of your life accumulative. Why is that? It's because you're in the moment. Your awareness is fully heightened. You see anything and everything, and you question. Question marks one of the greatest symbols in the world. It happens every second by somebody on this planet. There's a question. Hey, what's up? (laughs) That's a question. 
What are you doing? A question mark. Question everything around you. And then determine your own pathway. And we have free will to do this. So what's been on my mind? Uh, Thinking less. uh, Chilling out periodically throughout the day. Turning my brain off. And that's my desire for everybody listening. You know, I... One of the things I love doing is when I meet somebody and they're they're stressed to the max, I'm like, there's the show you need to listen to. <laughs> and I kind of get a little pushback from somebody. It's like, but you don't understand. Like, how could I have the greatest third quarter going back to our last episode? I'm already stressed to the max. It's like, no, no, no. The zone, the blueprint, the score system. This is about clearing away the clutter. Oh, how could I possibly, you know, have my best third quarter and have a bunch of time off with my family? Because we're cutting all that other stuff. Can you imagine, now think about this, can you imagine having 12, 1,400 thoughts a day, being able to hold a thought maybe longer, so you're thinking 30, 40% less than you normally do, breathe uh, definitely less than 15 breaths a minute, down below 10 breaths a minute where you're getting a lot of oxygen, getting rid of a lot of carbon dioxide with your exhale, and just chilling. Can you imagine doing that and producing records personally in your business or your sport? Less is more. If you have a plan, thinking less, breathing quantity-wise less, having less thoughts in the past, less thoughts in the future, will produce more for you. What a great formula to have a purposeful, calm life where you can really be your genuine best self. And it's possible, and people are doing this all over the world. And that's what this show really is all about. It's being your genuine, authentic best self, uh, but it's not overthinking it, uh, that's for sure. And, you know, I I am a tennis player. Um, I was a tennis player uh, on a professional level, I, I started as an amateur. I, I'd learned it at age 11. I learned very quickly, the more I thought, the more I lost. I learned that. I learned wow. that the hard way because I, I, you know, I played in Europe. I, I lost in uh, every country in Europe when I played but Belgium. Isn't that amazing? Uh, of course, Seth, I've never been to Belgium, so you know, you know that's that's the only reason. I, I did coach the number one player, uh, uh, Tielemann, uh, Lawrence Tielemann, from Belgium, and I've coached some Belgium uh, golfers, but I literally have never been to Belgium. But I, I learned when I overthought it, uh, I was going to end up on the losing side more times than not. Have a swift analysis, learn from it, uh, apply it, to, and, and then move back. You know, the other thing, and I want to talk about tennis because Wimbledon is the oldest tennis tournament in the world. It is the most prestigious first Wimbledon uh, at the All England uh, Club in uh, London, outside of London, in a little suburb called Wimbledon. Uh, It was in 1877. Uh, It is the pinnacle of men's and women's tennis. Every young tennis player dreams of playing on the hollow grass courts of Wimbledon and uh, being around that uh, electric atmosphere. And uh, tennis is a great game. It's one of the few sports. In fact, it's the only sport that I'm aware of that uh, if you play one game and I'm up one nothing, the next game that we play, 
is zero zero. And then you win it. It's now one to one. You've got one game. I've got one game. And, you know, we're going to play a set and then we'll play two out of three sets. Uh, Wimbledon, you play three out of five sets. Uh, but every game, it's back to zero zero. So it's one of the few sports, and to my knowledge, the only sport. Uh, and please uh, call in, email if there is another sport like this. You can be losing horribly, you can be playing terribly. But you've got a chance. There's no time clock. There's no three minutes to go, and we're down, and we have no shot. You always have a shot because the next game that you serve or return serve is 0 0. And I've seen people lose 6 0, uh, getting trounced in the first set of tennis, uh, and then they're down 5 0, and it's over, everybody thinks. And I've seen people leave the stands. And then they read in the paper, that guy came back and won. So tennis, I, I love that sport because you always had a shot. You, you, you could, if you could change your belief, change your expectancy, and gather some energy, uh, maybe change some tactics and strategy, you've got a chance of coming back from a, a deficit uh, unlike a lot of sports. You know, if you're down four touchdowns uh, with a minute to go in football, you uh, you should go to the parking lot so you can get out quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, over. It, it's over. Uh, tennis is definitely not like that. I'll tell you something else I learned about tennis, and it's really made an impact on my score success system. I realized early when I was coaching professionally that the time, and, and of course I knew this as a, as a player and as an amateur before I, I played professionally, that the changeover in tennis, uh, so at one to nothing, that's an odd total. One and zero is one. That's an odd number. You change sides. And the purpose of changing sides in tennis, uh, physically changing sides, is so that one player doesn't have an advantage because of the sun or the wind. That's the purpose of it. And uh, that changeover is 90 seconds. So when I first went out on the tour, uh, I'm coaching against the number one tennis player in the world. And I think the guy I was coaching was ranked like 30 in the world. And um, I looked over at the opposing coach, you know, my, my competition. Guy looks like a third base coach, Seth. He might as well have held up a sign telling the number one player in the world what to do. And he was definitely doing it during those 90-second changeover. The guy was just looking up, and the guy was doing signals and hand signals. And I'm like, well, that's not legal. There's no coaching in, in tennis. There isn't Davis Cup, I think. Uh, there, not I think. There isn't Davis Cup, but uh, not, not in uh, men's and professional women's tennis. And so I go to the Association of Tennis Pros, the ATP, and I go, hey, this guy's coaching illegally. That's why he won the match. And, and we barely lost to the number one player in the world. And the ATP looked me in the eye and go, we can't prove it. Do what you got to do. I'm like, seriously? So you're telling me that I should do signals? No, it's against the rules. <laughs> I go, let me get this straight. So the number one coach in the world is giving signals. It's against the rules. And you're telling me, it's against the rules, do what you got to do. 
And the guy looked at me and goes, do what you got to do. I'm like, okay, I got it. You know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Okay. So I started giving signals. Seth, I started changing, helping my athletes change their mindset, change their discipline, change their concentration, change their optimism, change their relaxation, change their enjoyment, change their tactics, change their strategy with simple signals. Now, it's still against the, the rules, but that's what was going on in the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, in 1990s, when I was out there coaching uh, full-time on the tour, and I knew that you could change everything in 90 seconds. And that really became the 90-second rule. I think you can change your mindset in 90 seconds in anything that you do. And I'll give you a little 90-second tip right now. Uh, And this is for relationships, and I've given this tip before. If you've been away from somebody you love and care about, at least two hours, you know, you haven't seen them. The first 90 seconds has more impact on your relationship more than spending hours and hours with them later. So when you walk into the house, you put your cell phone down, uh, your significant other looks upset. And, and so you mirror her being upset. And with a, a negative look, just mirroring what, what she or he's doing, saying, everything's, everything's going to be great. I can lift you up now because I've connected with you, and I can get you from a negative to a positive. I can do that in 90 seconds. And if you're in a great mood, then I can go in smiling, what's going on? And, and I can stay there. But that first 90 seconds uh, is so impactful. But that 90 seconds is also impactful in anything in your life. If you're stressed out, you can get unstressed by rebooting, getting your breathing down. You can change in less than 90 seconds. And I've had athletes change on the mound during the World Series, Uh, center court at Wimbledon. Not in 90 seconds. I've had them change their whole demeanor in five seconds. It's just being aware uh, of what you need. And we have free will. That's really the overarching theme of this show, free will. It is the American way, and, and that's how in a very short amount of time uh, we collectively have made this country great. You know, one question real quick about, uh, the, about the 90-second rule and Wimbledon in particular there is something different about this tournament, right? Like physically, you can you can see it. I, you know, co- players wear different kinds of colors of outfits and stuff. But for Wimbledon, it's you're kind of expected to wear white, and it's a tournament where uh, the Royal they, they've lo- they've loosened that up. Uh, the they've loosened that bit. up a little bit. You know, in the seventies, eighties, everybody wore white. Uh, they even fought having yellow tennis balls as opposed. To, they used to be all everything was white: white clothes, white tennis balls bowing to the royal box so so they've you know Wimbledon's changed over the years and, and upgrade a little bit but there's still a formality and an aura uh about Wimbledon the first time I coached there uh it was pretty heady stuff uh it was in the paper every day the paparazzi they were everywhere uh, even with the players that I was coaching uh, not number one but 10 or 15 in the world and 
it, it, it was a big deal. Today, and we'll find this out from Peter Fleming, uh, it's probably the second most popular sport in every country uh, in the world, uh, with the uh, number one being soccer, football, the you know, World Cup, obviously, uh, the number one sport in the world. And um, that's why tennis is, uh, and we're going to learn that from Peter, uh, also why uh, uh, the Europeans are so dominant and other countries are even more dominant than Americans. But um, the, the thing that, that I loved about uh, tennis uh, was the 90-second rule. And during that time, you know, I could be losing terribly. And I could get it together in those 90 seconds during that changeover to just change my behavior, flip the script, and uh, come back. And uh, there's nothing better than coming back from the jaws of defeat. I was just thinking about you know somebody being across the net from you, looking over and be like, what's this guy so happy about? <laughs> I'm crushing him. It's like, oh, you don't know. Well, I, I didn't always look happy. In fact, my mother uh, at one point said, you never smile. And I'm, Mom, the guy's you know trying to take my lunch money here. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, but I, I was always positive. I was never negative, and uh, uh, but you do have thoughts in tennis because it can be a long physical, mental uh, endurance contest. Uh, you can definitely have seeds of doubt pop into your head. You can have fatigue. You can have a little injury. Uh, you can have all kinds of things pop into your mind. And of course, the best athletes in the world, they keep those thoughts at bay. They cocoon themselves in a little purposeful calm shell and don't let those negative thoughts come in and that takes practice it really does and going through all the trials and tribulations uh and and experience those losses uh that really makes you a better player you know seth it's summertime and we all want to be fit we want to look good we want to look good in our bathing suits our shorts but you know what? You not only want to look good, Seth, you want to feel good. And I really, being a former professional athlete, uh, owning a fitness center, uh, working out on a regular basis, it's really the key to longevity. It's the key to feeling good every day. And if you want to be in the zone, uh, I think one of the zone breakers is being out of shape and not feeling good. So if you want to build up your endurance, build up your strength, uh, there is a product that I actually have, and that is Nordic Track. And we've seen Nordic Track for years now, but uh, they've got some amazing uh, training equipment, not just treadmills, uh, not just exercise bike, and not just incline trainers. They also have the Nordic Track for strength. You're going to find one of them that resonates with you there's also some uh, programs that come with the Nordic track. You can actually start your day with a run through the streets of Paris and end with cross-training on the shores of Thailand or work out on the African uh, safari. Uh, so it's pretty cool what uh, Nordic track has done. It doesn't take a lot of time. They're efficient. You can put them away in, in any place in a room. Uh, they're not cumbersome. And uh, I've been using my Nordic track for some time, and I love it. Now, you want to get $75 off your next order? NordicTrack.com slash Fannin. And then you put in the promo code Fannin. Go to N-O-R-D-I-C-T-R-A-C-K dot com forward slash F, 
F-A-N-N-I-N, and then use the offer code FANNIN, F-A-N-N-I-N. I'm going to repeat that. To get $75 off of your purchase, go to N-O-R-D-I-C-T-R-A-C-K dot com slash F-A-N-N-I-N and use the offer code FANNIN and you'll get on your way to having fitness in the zone. I'm excited about Wimbledon. We're right in the middle of it. The tournament started, uh, but I'm also excited to bring in my uh, one of my best friends, uh, Peter Fleming. I'm excited to have him on the air. I coach Peter, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s. We've run a, a, a golf tournament together. Uh, we've done a lot of things together. Uh, he was at my wedding, uh, and he's just an all-around great guy. He's a champion, no doubt about it. Uh, broadcasting BBC uh, men's uh, on the men's draw at Wimbledon. He's been a uh, broadcaster for some years now. But this guy's a champion. Uh, this guy's a winner. Let's bring Peter on to the show. Peter Fleming, welcome to the Jim Fannin Show. Thank you very much. Peter, how are, how are you? Uh, doing well, thanks, Jim. Peter, just, uh, you know, just well, hanging around. Well, uh, it's that time of the year for a tennis player. Wimbledon, uh, the most prestigious tournament, uh, the oldest tournament. Um, and you've had a lot of success there. I, I know now you're obviously uh, commentating, color commentating for BBC. Tell me about the first time uh, you played at Wimbledon. When was it? And what was that like for you? How did you feel? Well, the first time, I, we, uh, I flew over directly after the NCAAs. I played uh, in 1976 and, and, in fact, lost in the qualifying of the singles. My partner, I, Brian, Brian Teacher, and I qualified for the doubles, but we lost first round. So that wasn't a very memorable year. Uh, but it was a thrill. It was a thrill just to be there. It was a you know big deal. Everybody was uh, up for it. I guess the the second year again, I didn't. I don't think I won a match or so. So it was the third year, 1978, where uh, John and I got to the finals. That was that was very exciting. You know, you know, Wimbledon has such a formality to it, uh, where the players uh, dress have always dressed over the decades uh, a little more formal, a little more white. Uh, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. Uh, in 78, with you and John McEnroe, uh, tell me about your experience with that formality, or did you just treat it like any other tournament, especially in 1978? Uh, well, I, I mean, it's... It's not really any more formal, you know. You okay? Yeah. Back then, we were meant to bow to the, any royalty that was in the royal box. Uh, they don't do that anymore, and um, it didn't. You know, it didn't really play into it. More of more importance was the the just the aura of the place. I remember that first year we had uh, we had beaten Smith and Lutz, who were the second seeds in the round before and 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 uh, we drove into the grounds at uh, twelve o'clock get to get ready to play a two o'clock match and uh, I guess we drove into the grounds at twelve o five and the gates had opened at twelve o'clock 
And as we drove in, we were first, we were meant to be the first match on court three. And as we drove in, there wasn't an empty seat. There wasn't an empty seat and they were going to wait two hours to watch us play. When that happens and you, you, you drive up and you see how excited everyone is to watch you play, yeah, that gets you going. I, I remember seeing that and going, whoa, two hours early? Okay, I'm getting up for this match. <laughs> for doubles, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty heady stuff. When you won Wimbledon, you won Wimbledon four times with John, um, a doubles title. The first victory, what was that like, winning uh, a major, well, winning Wimbledon doubles? What, what was that like? Before you win a major, Everyone knows you're good, but you never know if you're going to choke or not. You never know if, if when it gets tight and you're, you're up match point or you're serving for the match, whether you're going to actually be able to hit the ball in the court. And so to, to actually get through that and win in that situation is a huge thrill. The first title that we won was, is still by far my favorite, just simply because it was um, it was the one that said, "Wow, you you you, you did it! You, you you know you grew up your whole life thinking, nah, that's not possible. Well, maybe is it? You think? Yeah, it is. I guess it is. Being in the zone, uh, finding that purposeful calm where there are no nerves and there is no fear, and you're totally locked in the moment. You know, you and John McEnroe, you had those zone moments." together almost as one and just talk a little bit about that intuitive communication but you know between you two uh you know every person playing doubles would like to have that connection with their partner um that symbiotic relationship talk a little bit about that how you all could get into a zone and just make some runs of two three four games in a row uh playing i don't know you know it, it, it doesn't, didn't feel like we were in the zone too often, you know, it, because, because, okay, you hit three or four great shots and, and are you in the zone or, or did you just kind of get lucky? You know, you, you, the, you know, maybe the level below the zone, we, we, we hung out in pretty regularly, you know, and, and uh, that feels good. I mean, I, in, in, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure we did slip into that mindset um, more often than I can remember. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a great feeling. That's when you beat guys one and one and, and think, well, how, how did that happen? And, and, uh, um, but I suppose it, you know, it's, it's harder. It's on grass, for instance, because the courts are not perfect. You, you don't know where the ball is going to be until after it bounces so you, so you have to be a little more careful and you can't just, you know, a hard court where you know exactly where the ball is going to be as soon as the opponent hits it, then you can run and swing with a lot more abandon. You've got to be a little more disciplined and a little more careful playing on grass. And so that's why we don't often see guys lock into that zone. You know, I guess now that they, that they serve and stay back, uh, and the whole game is played from so far behind the baseline. Maybe they have a chance to get into that zone a little more, but it's not easy. 
How does uh, someone like Roger Federer, I mean, this guy's won eight Wimbledons. He's should be at the end of his career, but actually he's at, you know, at the top of his game. Um, one of the favorites, if not the favorite by a lot of experts to win this year. How does this guy keep motivation? You, you've watched him quite a bit this year, and I'm just impressed by him so much. I actually in awe of how he's constantly motivated uh, to be at the top of his game. And and do well, you pick him as a favorite for this year? He is the favorite, no question about that. Uh, it was the same way LeBron does it. You know, it's like, well, how do you get up to do all that work in the summertime, and how do you get up to for all the training that's required, and still keep it fresh and still um, act as if your life depended on it? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't able to do it, um, but but. That's what sets a guy like Roger apart. He's just, uh, you know, he's able or he has been able to dig incredibly deep and, and found a source of energy that's that's just all powerful, seemingly. And that's with making so much money and having kids, uh, twins, and uh, it's pretty, pretty impressive stuff. So who who's your predictions? Uh, it sounds like Federer is one of your predictions. Uh, but who should we look for in this tournament? And even if they don't make it uh, all the way through, who are the up-and-comers that we should be looking out for as as we go away from Wimbledon into the hard-court season in the U.S. and into the U.S. Open? Who who are the players that you know maybe our listeners haven't heard of, but they should be watching out for at least in the men's uh, the men's draw right now? Who are some well, of these up-and-comers? Uh, you know- Federer and Nadal are the top two seeds, and they're, uh, you know, Federer is certainly the favorite. I would say that Marin Cilic is probably the second favorite in my book, and Cilic is the third seed. And then, and then Nadal, I would say, is the third favorite. Djokovic is the guy who I think is the fourth favorite to win the tournament, and yet he's only seeded you know, 20 something. I don't, I, and he played, yeah. uh, Oh no, he, he seated 12th actually, but, but he's starting to play well. Another guy to watch out for is the young German, uh, Sasha Zverev, who is the, uh, the fourth seed and he's good. He's six foot six inches tall. He's, uh, he's got every shot in the book. He moves well. Uh, and he's, he's got a monster serve. And so, so he, could just, you know, often it takes guys a little longer, especially tall guys, it takes them a little longer to learn how to play on grass because, of course, they only play on it for one month of the year. And and so uh, Zverev, I'm sure, is still trying to figure that out a little bit. Is but, that because um, the ball doesn't bounce as high? Uh, ball bounces pretty high. It's just it's just different. It's The, the bounce is more erratic. The bounce, you know, you... you you slide differently, you know, some places you stick and some places you slide, you know, and it's, it's, so it's, it's a, a different law unto itself. And, and it just takes experience to figure it out. Uh, I, I tell you some of the, the guys who will come through, you know, in a year or two years, maybe this young Canadian uh, kid, Shapovalov is uh, an incredible 
talent. He is uh, electric in how he strikes the ball. He's a great athlete. He's a lefty with a with a good serve. He's probably going to be number one in the world one day. Not this year, but uh, you know, give him a few years and and he'll be there. Um, and then there, you know, there are some other guys. Uh, you know, the Americans. John Isner, seated ninth. He's a, you know, with that serve, he's he's a, a threat to beat anybody. Sam Query, the same. He's seated eleventh. Jack Sock has had a really tough year. He is seated. He's ranked around twenty, I think. You know, uh, you just me- you just mentioned three Americans that I'm not sure the listeners on our show. Uh, they're not household names. Uh, you know, it, so many. If I ask our listeners, can you name? Uh, one or five top American men tennis players, I think they might struggle. What's up with American men's tennis? Um, and, you know, we're just always used to dominating. Well, we, we we don't. What's, uh, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, everything goes in cycles. When, when Americans dominated the game, you know, back when I was playing and, and uh, you know, that Sampras, Courier, Agassi era, um, yeah, tennis wasn't quite as popular around the world and, and Europe has caught up. You, you know, tennis is a huge sport in France. Okay. Soccer is the number one sport as it is in every European country, but, but tennis is the number two sport. You know, what is it in, in the States? You oh know, my it's gosh. maybe yeah. low fifth, eighth, 10th, you know, tenth. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, so, so when they're handing out, uh, great athletes, to take part in the sport, you know, tennis doesn't get a huge amount of, of prospects uh, compared to the other countries. The European countries, tennis is a big, big sport. And yeah, so, I'd, lo- I'd love so to see LeBron James uh, growing up on t- <laughs> a tennis court, see what he would be like. That would be, that would be pretty amazing, really. Uh, I think you're right. So right now you're saying the best athletes uh, that are making it to the top of men's tennis uh, are coming from Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. and um, Well, that's not necessarily the case. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jack, Jack Sock is a great athlete. He is, uh, you know, he's a guy who can move as well as anybody, uh, and he's ranked 18 in the world. Uh, the, but the fact is that, that um, you know, maybe – uh, there aren't enough Jack Sox to, okay. to, to, to have the sort of numbers that we had. You know, I think when I was playing, we had 30 Americans in the top 100, you know, so it was, or even more, it might have been 40. I mean, it was a lot. It was, it was definitely Australia and the U.S. dominated the sport. But, but uh, you know, that, those days are over. It's, a, it's a very much a world sport, and, and little countries like Switzerland – uh, you, you know, can produce a great player, you know, the, Scotland, Serbia, you know, I mean, these are tiny countries that, that are producing amazing players. And so it's, it's, it's just not that easy, you know, and, 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 and a lot of those countries, finally, a lot of those countries would be really thrilled to have three players in the top one, uh, top 20, as the U.S. does. But unfortunately, because sports are so huge and, you know, we're up against football and baseball and basketball and hockey and, you know, it's, it's like it's 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 rough to make a dent. 
We go, what? What? what he's number nine in the world? Who cares? Yeah, well, you're you, right. You know, if <laughs> you're, you're, right, number nine, if you're number nine in the NBA, you're an all star. You are, you know, you're a superstar. Uh, but, but in tennis, people don't care. They, if you're not number one, you're, you're worthless. Yeah, I think that, that, that is how we think as Americans. And, and then, you know, there's also the personalities that, uh, you know, Americans have so much, uh, fun with, uh, we we like the brash. We like the McEnroe, the Fleming McEnroe doubles team. The brash uh, American uh, Americans like that, and uh, they they like the personalities, not not just the the results. How about on the women's side, Peter? What's uh, what's the deal on the women's? Most of the listeners on our show uh, would say, well, Serena Williams, you know, and, and of course she's. Uh, probably not the number one seed being uh, out with a pregnancy, but uh, she's definitely got to be a favorite at least. No, she's the 25th seed. And, and there were w- players on the women's tour who were annoyed with that saying, well, she shouldn't even be seated because she hasn't w- won any matches in a long time and, and blah, de, blah, de, blah. Of course, you know, the fact that, that the women's game haven't got their act in order that someone, you know, that someone who's pregnant is penalized. That's ridiculous. Uh, so, so Serena is a threat. I don't think she's, she's fit enough. I don't think she's confident enough to, to actually win the tournament. Of course, she's won majors before being incredibly out of shape. And so, uh, you know, she's got a real champion's mentality that, that if she just gets, you know, a couple of matches into it that, that she might be able to just flip the switch and say, I'm back, I'm back and, and watch out. And, uh, you know, that would be exciting for everybody because Serena is the icon of women's tennis these days, but there are other good players out there. Okay. Simona Halep just won the French open. She's the, the top seed. Um, she, she is, a little more disadvantaged on grass because she's not very tall. She's, you know, she's, she's, she's a great athlete, but she can't hit winners past people. The, you know, the way uh, Serena can, or uh, uh, Petra Kvitova, who's won Wimbledon a couple of times can just serve bombs past people. Those are the, the bigger threats uh, on this surface. than someone like Simona Halep or, or, uh, Caroline Wozniacki, who's the second seed, um, you know, so, so I would look at, at some of the, the bigger hitters. Venus Williams has a, a chance to come through this. Carolina Pliskova with a huge serve, a Czech player seated seventh. And, and then when you talk about great athletes, there are no better athletes in women's tennis than Sloane Stevens. She is, uh, she moves so gracefully and, and so beautifully that she's, uh, she's a four seed finalist at the French Open. You know, could she break through and win Wimbledon? Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Madison Keys, the, the ninth seed, again, another American, has a chance because she serves so well, has a chance to, uh, to go deep. Yeah, this could be a breakthrough tournament you know you win Wimbledon and you're, you're at the top of the world that just spills over and I, I think winning the French really is uh, uh, that's a game changer mentality wise going in, any going into the and grass courts 
So, so Peter, so right now, if you had to predict, uh, are, are you going with uh, Federer to win Wimbledon? Yes. And, and on the women's side, who's your, who's your, uh, who's your champion? That's a good question. I haven't thought about it too much, to be honest with you, because I don't work on the women's game. So, uh, you know, Garbina Muguruza, who won it last year, is the third seed. She hasn't played that well recently, but again, she likes grass. She's good on grass, and she's won it before. So uh, maybe Muguruza is the, the favorite to win the women. So, Peter, one of our listeners uh, sent in, uh, will Harry and uh, uh, Merkel, will, will they be at Wimbledon? Will they be at center court Wimbledon? I'm not sure where that uh, question came in. Uh, but uh, in, in I don't ter- know. Hold on. Let me call them up. Let me see. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I thought, I thought you'd have an inside scoop there. <laughs> yeah, maybe tomorrow. So is the Royal Box still a big deal uh, in terms of uh, Wimbledon and uh, center court? Do the Brits get excited when royalty comes to uh, to center court Wimbledon? Um, well, I don't know. I, the Royal Box is a great. It's it's great. I've been there two or three times, and and uh, you know it's not just royalty that that is invited into the Royal Box. I mean the um, the, the uh, let's see who was it. So you have you go in, you have lunch, and then you watch the matches. At my table for lunch, it was Rory McIlroy and Jensen Button, and and one or two other guys. It was you know it's just fun, and and uh, so so yeah, the Royal Box is a big deal, uh, even if royalty doesn't show up. So if someone listening is a young tennis player, uh, and our most of our audience is American, although we do have a, a lot of other uh, listeners from around the world. What kind of advice to get out if they had the talent, they had the athletic ability, what kind of advice would you give them uh, to move up into the ranks, into the stratosphere of uh, you know, one of the top players in the world, on either side, men or women? Any advice you'd give them? You have to compete. You've got to just get out there and, and learn how to win because that's, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter – you know, they're so obsessed, especially in, in, in this country, in Britain, uh, uh, with technique. You know, oh, you, you know, he's not doing this. And it's like, well, who cares? Does he, can he make the ball go where he wants it to go? And, and you know, it, the, everybody out here is a good athlete. You know, just about everybody is a, is a good athlete. Some are better than others. But the guys who get to the, to the top, especially in this day and age, are, are uh, the – strong mental competitors, guys who, who don't allow circumstances to inhibit them and, and, uh, and, and come back because let's, okay, Wimbledon, 128 draw, there will be 127 losers yep. at Wimbledon. Yep. And every week, that's how it is. There's only one winner and everybody else is a loser. And so if you can't come back, you know, battle back, after adversity, after a setback, then you're not going to make it as a tennis player. You have to be able to lose and, and use that as inspiration to spur you on to greater heights. You know, when, um, when I was training uh, athletes for Wimbledon, uh, initially I, I saw that everybody tried to do things differently uh, the week before 
a big event and, you know, eat better, sleep better. Not, you know, the first thing I realized is that that seems a little strange. You, you know, what, uh, you should be probably working on your strengths. Did, before a, a major, a big event, did you do anything different? Did you try to do everything exactly the same? Did you play more mat sets? And, and what's, what's the, what's going on on the pro tour now, the week before a big event and getting ready well, to play your best? Everybody's playing sets until the, you know, three days before, and then you wind it down because obviously you don't want to be exhausted when you go into the tournament. So, so, you know, probably Saturday and Sunday, most guys will, they might play one set and, you know, or play an hour, hour and a half tops and, uh, just get loose, turn the, turn the engine over and, and then get out of there, you know, make sure their bodies are feeling good and fresh and, and, uh, and relaxed. So they're just raring to go. You know, one of the things you've said that I, I hope our listeners really take to heart, you need to be a player. You need to compete every single day. But I know so many American junior tennis players go out and do drills over and over, working on technique, drilling, drilling. And it sounds like everything that you've said, the advice is you need to play sets, you need to play matches, and you need to keep learning from them, keep getting better. It doesn't mean you don't drill, but you need to practice playing, practice competing, uh, and not just do that when you're in a tournament. At least that's what I've seen in junior tennis over the last few years especially. Same thing in golf as well. Play more uh, rounds of golf instead of just going out and beating golf balls. Would you say that's uh, – uh, I've, I've summed up what uh, what you've been talking about. Absolutely. Well, well, Harry Hopman, the, the old Australian Davis Cup captain, who, by the way, won 21 Davis Cup titles. All right. So he's coached oh my every great Australian who ever played, uh, you know, apart from Leighton Hewitt. Um, but, but, you know, up until 1973, he coached everybody. And, and uh, he said to, to John McEnroe and I when we were kids, uh, you know, we asked him, so do you think it's all, you think we should play doubles? And he said, look, any practice, any court you get, any court time, sorry, I got there in the end, any court time you get in the match court is three times more valuable than practice court time. So if you can play men's doubles, mixed doubles, triples, you know, quadruples, <laughs> as long as you're competing, that is more valuable than any kind of practice you might do. Well, I and, think that, and it, that's great you know, advice. It, it, yeah, it, I, I think it is great advice because you have to learn how to win. That's the most important thing to becoming a, a professional in any sport. Learn how to win. Well, Peter, you're definitely a winner, and I, I'm so glad uh, that you're on the show. You've won uh, so much for Wimbledon doubles titles. Uh, got your ranking, got to the quarters at Wimbledon singles and uh, got your ranking as high as number eight in the world. And you had a stellar uh, U.S. Davis Cup uh, record representing the United States. You're definitely a winner, Peter, and uh, I've known you a long time. Uh, you're always the same. You're always positive. You're always upbeat, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always learning something. You know, I can look back and go, 
Well, you know, I, I, I helped really coach Peter Fleming uh, early in my career. But, Peter, I've learned uh, as much from you uh, maybe as you've learned from me. I've learned quite a bit from you and, and how you go about your business being a professional athlete. So I'm so glad you're on the show. And hopefully we can no, get you back. You. Hopefully we can thank get you, you back. for everything, for the, Jim. Well, I hope we can get you back for the U.S. Open uh, in September around Labor Day. And I uh, hope to see you in New York when you're in. Okay. Peter, thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Hey, Seth, it is summertime, and summertime means going outdoors, being in the sunshine, and being outdoors in the sunshine. We're talking sunglasses. How many sunglasses do you believe you've lost in your lifetime? You know, probably about as many as I've thrown into the front seat of my car and then sat on and mangled. (laughs) I. yeah, if I answer that question, how many sunglasses have I lost? I have to think, well, it really depends on how many I bought. Because all the ones I bought, I've lost. <laughs> and I got to tell you, there's a new product, and, and it's a cool, cool product. They're called Maglock, M-A-G-L-O-C-K, Maglock sunglasses. Uh, and it's made by a pretty cool company uh, called Distill Union. And they make products that simplify your life. And, of course, that fits into the Jim Fannin Show. We're all about simplicity. But here's the cool thing. I got my first pair of Maglock sunglasses. Uh, they're made out of rubber. You can sit on them, Seth, and they're going to be fine. They're made out of rubber. There's a metallic part of them that you can hang on anything metallic. So one of the things that I've done, I put them on the light switch. Ah, so when you walk out, they're right there. So out to the garage, going to my car, there's my sunglasses. And then when I come back in, I take them off and I put them on the light switch. There they are. It's so cool. I cannot believe uh, I'm going to have these sunglasses, I know, for a long time. And guess what else? I look cool. (laughs) I do. These are really cool shades. So listen, if you want a cool pair of shades, get the Maglock sunglasses. It's uh, product designers who care about simplicity, just like we do at the Jim Fannin Show, Distill Union. And if you want a pair of these sunglasses, uh, you place your first order, you get a 15% discount, Seth. And all you need to do is to go to distillunion.com, put in the promo code Fannin, and you'll get 15% off of your first order. That's D-I-S-T-I-L. U-N-I-O-N dot C-O-M dot com. Distillunion.com. And the promo code? Fannin. That's easy. F-A-N-N-I-N. They also have wallets. They've got lots of products. Again, they're designers that help make your life simple. And that's why... I'm wearing Maglock sunglasses. Once again, that code is Fannin, F-A-N-N-I-N, distillunion.com. Use promo code Fannin at checkout. I'm ready to watch the tennis for the next, uh, <laughs> for the rest of this tournament. Let me tell you, uh, that got me pretty fired up. Yeah, Peter's uh, definitely has some insight. It's going to be interesting who can stand uh, withstand the pressure. Uh, let's see if Serena can get that championship muster that she's so famous for. And uh, even though she hasn't played uh, uh, that many matches, uh, we'll see what's going to happen with her. And and we'll see, uh, uh, you know, what's going on uh, with the men's draw. And we'll see how Peter's predictions go. 
uh, in the men's draw. So uh, it was great to have Peter on the show. And of course, every week we look at who's in the zone. And that's because the zone is the zone is the zone is the zone. So the same mentality that helps you have your best quarter in business is the same mentality that, that can help you throw an amazing game in the, uh, the College World Series is the same mentality uh, that really can get you locked in in whatever it is that you need to perform in. Uh, and of course, we'll get into those individual elements at the end of the show, but we always look at who are the exceptional standout performances. Well, let's. you mentioned the College World Series, uh, and I've been to the College World Series many times. It, it's, uh, it's awesome. The energy there is, uh, is pretty phenomenal. Uh, but Oregon State, you won, and you're in the zone. You're probably still in the zone. Freshman Kevin Abel uh, tossed a two-hitter for his record fourth victory in the College World Series, and Oregon State beat Arkansas. Five nothing uh, for the national championship, and Abel was definitely a zone performer. I mean, he was nothing short of spectacular, Seth, uh, against an Arkansas team still reeling from the foul ball fiasco in the ninth inning uh, last week that cost it the title, gave new life to the Beavers. But Abel retired the last twenty Arkansas batters, uh, and uh, he caught uh, a, a hitter. On a three-two pitch, called strike to end the game. That is a movie ending, right there. It's a movie ending, and the title was Oregon State's third, their first since it won uh, two straight back in '07, and uh, they've won 111 uh, out of 130 games. Uh, so, Oregon State, you're in the zone, and you definitely reach that high daily standard that Jim's talking about. You know, as we kind of summarize the first half of this baseball season, of course, ever there's always something to say about the Red Sox and Yankees, even the years when neither team's been that great at a particular moment. They're always pretty great against each other because they they show up to play. There's no love lost. No, <laughs> there's none. I, and I, I've been in both stadiums uh, in those games. There is no love lost for the fans. Pretty interesting. The Red Sox both. And the Yankees, both 17-1 stretches this season. It's the first time these teams have had 17 wins in one stretches. These are zone runs. First time they've done a 17-1 in the same season. That's setting this second half up to see uh, the race for the, uh, for the title in the American League and uh, see who's going to go on uh, to the World Series. Also, you got two... Rookie managers, Alex Coro, who we've had on our show, Boston manager, Aaron Boone, uh, also a rookie first-year manager, Yankees manager. Uh, first time since 1901, uh, that was the first inaugural season of the American League, that the teams with the two best records in Major League Baseball on a given day were guided by first-year managers. So that's impressive for both uh, both managers. You're in the zone, and uh, they're both on pace to win 100 games. And uh, that's never happened in the same season. So uh, pretty exciting. Uh, let's also go to um, another element. Seth, let's talk about former Detroit Lion football, Ryan Broyles. This guy lived on $60,000 a year during his short career. 
and he used what he saved and the lifetime lifespan of a pro football player, uh, a running back, for example, the lifespan of a running back in the NFL, 3.5 years. So you, you may you be making some big money, got a bonus. Three and a half years, the average guy, he's out of the league. Out of the league. Here's another stat from the Players Union, the NFL Players Union. Within 18 months of retiring from pro football, 78% of the players within 18 months are financially in jeopardy or bankrupt. That's amazing. Now, that's alarmed the NFL, uh, but it did not alarm uh, Ryan Broyles. You want to talk about Ryan yeah, a little bit? Yeah, so this is just amazing. So what did he do with all that money when he's living on $60,000 a year? Because obviously, even if you are at the bottom of the pay scale in uh, the NFL, you're making a couple bucks more than 60000 a year. He saved it, and uh, you know he saw himself as, this is so key, more than a football player. Well, he, the, he only played 21 NFL games because of injury. Yeah, and uh, he, so he took that money, uh, and he and his wife, Mary Beth, have really built uh, what I think we can call a real estate empire in Oklahoma and Texas. So they're covering two different states, and uh, they're making six hundred to $3,000 per month uh, off of each one of their rental properties. So that means that uh, realistically, I mean, we're not there. We don't see his books, but realistically, he could be making NFL money basically for the rest of his life because he had the self-discipline to know uh, that, that he was more than a football player. This was a season, uh, uh, you know, literal and, uh, you know, kind of a metaphorical season in his life and that he wanted something else after that. And I think that's just fantastic. Well, you know, th- this is a guy, and they've talked about him, who um, when he was uh, constructing uh, a restaurant, uh, uh, he jumped in there with all the workers. Uh, that's That's when you could see what this person was made of. This guy had free will, professional athlete. Uh, when he had to retire because of injury, he wasn't a victim. He wasn't a judge. Not at all. This guy's a champion. And today he's got approximately 40 rental properties and climbing. This is getting your money in the zone. This is getting your finances in the zone. Sacrifice now. Invest it in you. And you'll see the rewards and get your finances in the zone. We got some good news, and I I love good news. This is America's Most Positive Podcast. Uh, The cure for blindness? A a major cure for blindness for a lot of people in the world. The reason we're giving you a a big shot of good news every week is because, uh, you know, we talk about negative news traveling 20 times faster. So we're giving the good news a, a little head start here, right? So cataracts are such a simple um, procedure to fix that that can make people functionally blind, uh, you know, really not be able to see much of anything. And in developing nations like uh, Ghana, India, Ethiopia, and Myanmar, uh, there are so many people that develop cataracts that it's not really that that big of a deal. Other simple eye issues, uh, you know, just kind of the stuff you would go to the doctor and uh, and get taken care of. You know, most of our listeners in the United States, we have a global audience, but most of them. So it's not a big deal here. It's just kind of going to the doctor, right? However, historically, a lot of people who are are living in these developing nations have not had um, access to it. And uh, now there's a nonprofit that says they're doing 200 cataract surgeries 
every day because these things are only taking 40 to 20 minutes to complete. And then some of these people who haven't been able to see much of anything um, for years within 24 hours, take the bandages off and can pass a driver's Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That's the Himalayan cataract project. Uh, One of its co-founders, Jeffrey Tabin, Uh, you're in the zone. You know, this, this reminds me, uh, one year, uh, I donated one year of my life to Worldview International Foundation, an NGO, nonprofit, and in Bangladesh, uh, children under the age of five were being born with nutritional blindness, and they were being born blind, and the solution was really simple. You need vitamin A in your diet. But, you know, how many people in the outskirts, in the rural part of Bangladesh, uh, knew this? And, and so Worldview knew the challenge, had the solution, and they came along and uh, uh, communicated that solution with packets of seeds to grow vegetables uh, for vitamin A, and it dramatically by 50% reduced nutritional blindness just by that fact. So there are, there are a lot of fixes uh, in the world. It's a matter of uh, uh, being able to get the information to the people at the right time in the right place. So Himalayan Cataract uh, Project, you're in the zone. Congratulations. We've also got some good news, and this, this is something I don't think we've maybe even seen in my lifetime, a new park. So a 730-acre patch of uh, previously private land that was watched over by this gentleman who uh, actually passed away when he was 96. Uh, It's now called the Harold Richardson Redwood Reserve, which is home to uh, some of the oldest and and tallest redwood trees. This is out in California. Uh, It had been something that that uh, this gentleman had bought to protect, and once he passed away, uh, he put it into a a situation where uh, this is is going to open – and this thing is, you know, going to be able to stay. Some of these trees are taller than we're talking about buildings in New York City. 32-story building, that tall. Uh, 1,450 ancient redwood trees. A uh, little private reserve that's now going to be uh, uh, public. So, uh, redwood, you're in the zone. And if you've ever seen a redwood, redwood tree in person, which I have, whoa. That's an amazing living thing on this planet. They are so incredible. And then to realize how old they are. We're not, we're not talking hundreds. Some of these are older than that. And, and to get that tall and that majestic. So kudos uh, uh, to Harold Richardson donating this uh, so that we can all share in it. And let's throw one more piece of, uh, of good news your way. So a pretty major piece of news you may have seen that uh, women in Saudi Arabia, uh, as the country's changing, can now legally drive on um, you know, public roads for the first time. Well, there's a, a Formula One race car driver uh, who competes in Europe, and you've, you've coached some race car drivers. I have. Right? Uh, she decided that uh, you know, to, to celebrate this, she was definitely going to, her, as her first time driving in, in her home country, uh, she was going to drive a uh, a Formula One race car <laughs> to kick off driving for the first time. Uh, and I, I love what she said. She said that, uh, you know, she really wants to inspire girls to get into motorsports. And wow, a career. how cool is that? Very cool. Uh, Very cool. 
ladies in Saudi Arabia, you're driving in the zone. I like it. I like it. And you know what? Free will. All these feel-good stories came about free will. Someone had to make a decision of what they wanted to do. Uh, Other people followed in line. But if you go from the Oregon State win, uh, the Redwood Project, to the blindness, the cataract, the Himalayan project, to the women in Saudi Arabia. This, all of these good news stories really came out of free will, Seth. And that's what this show uh, is definitely all about. It's about free will. So think about it right now. It's the, right in the middle, of, you know, almost the middle of July. You've got free will to stay on track to have your best third quarter ever, but this is an everyday deal. This is not just let's have a plan and put it in a shelf and put it in a drawer and think it's going to manifest by itself. You got to exercise your free will. Think about what you think about. Periodically do a little inventory. Am I in the future too much? Am I replaying negative past over and over again? Am I thinking like a victim? Oh, man, I can't believe this. Am I being a judge? Why would she say that? Why did he do that? What's my inner dialogue? And that inner dialogue, if we could see a printout of every listener, and I could sit down and go with every person listening right now. Let me say your printout of every thought you had today. We'd be, you and I would be able to determine whether they're going to be successful or not. Or whether that's a zone day or, man, that's a bad day. Any bad day that you have, it was spawned by your free will allowing bad thoughts. Only bad thoughts can create bad days. Now, I know sometimes bad things happen to good people. But you know, success, it's really getting up one more time from defeat. And that really takes free will. You can have an accident. You can have an injury. uh, You can have a surgery that you never thought in a million years you'd ever have. But you've got free will to have super recovery. You've got free will to get back up, get back in the game. You can sit and complain about how much weight you've lost or how much weight you've gained. What do most of us do? We use our free will to complain about how much weight we've gained. Oh, man. If I eat another donut, my my rear end's so big, Seth, I think I'm being followed. And I start telling fat jokes. The joke's on me. The joke's on you. Free will to clean up that inner dialogue, which is going to help you manifest your blueprint. Of course, you need free will to even design a blueprint. To begin with. And if you're a pretty new listener to the show, or you've just been kind of half committed and you don't have it on paper, you got to get this thing down in front of you because just trying to keep a a complex situation, uh, try to bring simplicity to your life through just keeping everything in your head isn't going to work. You've really got to know where you're going. And to do that, Jim's book is called The Blueprint. You can search uh, Amazon.com or your local bookstore. That's F-A-N-N-I-N. 
Jim Fannin, The Blueprint. If you've casually listened to us three, four episodes, like, wow, this is really cool. This works when you commit to having a blueprint for your life and not just kind of a just kind of a fuzzy picture in your head of where you're kind of yeah, going. Yeah, this is over. The blueprint was spawned from over 2,500 clients that I've coached in business and life and sports, uh, young, old. One of the first things I did is create a blueprint uh, and tell everyone you're more than a tennis player, you're more than a baseball player, you're more than a businesswoman or a businessman. Uh, you know, you're a sister, you're a brother, uh, you're, you're a son, you got your own money, it's your own wellness. And uh, so I created life blueprints for everybody. And those blueprints, 2,500, have made its way into this book. You have a lot of examples uh, that'll help you get visions and goals for each part of your life so that you can have a blueprint that now you can manifest with your free will. We've also had the show, Seth, ab- about tennis, and definitely tennis has been uh, near and dear to me. i got to tell you about my most embarrassing moment. Of oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is something that I and everybody else wants to know. Yeah, this, is, uh, this is one of my most embarrassing moments actually in my life. So here I am coaching. I'm in the coach's box, center court Wimbledon on international television. The stands are packed. There's a waiting, you know, a wait to get in. Um, and I'm coaching a player, a young player, uh, who's playing one of the top seeded players. Uh, he had just won uh, the tournament before Wimbledon, Queens Club, uh, future Hall of Famer Tony Roach. And I'm coaching a young player named Phil Dent. They're both Aussies. One's really young. One's. Uh, starting to be in the twilight, but he's still one of the top players in the world. So for whatever reason, I'm wearing all black. Uh, and I'd been wearing all black. I'm not sure. I look like Johnny Cash in the stands. Uh, <laughs> I've got sunglasses. I've got black shirt. I've got black pants. I've got black shoes, and I'm in the player's box. And in the fifth set, the player on the court, Tony Roach, the opponent, he looks up into the stands and points at me and calls the umpire down from the umpire chair and they're both pointing at me and it's one of those I'm looking around to see who they're pointing at and I realize everybody in the stadium is looking at me and they're having a discussion about me and I, I don't have a clue what's going on and then uh, an ATP uh, official, uh, the Association of Tennis Professionals comes up to me they stop the match, comes up and says, did you hypnotize Tony Roach? <laughs> and I go, what? He goes, have you hypnotized Tony Roach? Tony Roach wants to call the match. It's in protest. He believes you have hypnotized him from the stands, and he, he wants uh, your player defaulted. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He says, have you hypnotized Tony Roach? And I said, just tell Tony Roach not to look up here anymore. <laughs> and so the guy, the ATP uh, uh, official, didn't even know what to say. And I go, just tell him not to look up. There, there's no rules. There's no rules. So anyway, he's so distracted because the player I'm coaching is looking up at me during the 90-second changeover. I'm giving signals like everybody else that was doing it on the tour. 
He thinks I'm hypnotizing him. He loses the rest of the games. We upset, biggest upset of the tournament at that time, upset one of the top seeds. And then every time from that moment on, when I came into the locker room and Tony Roach was there, he wouldn't look me in the eye. He'd get up and leave. He'd go somewhere else. And so I told all my players, don't say anything. If they want to believe that I can hypnotize them, let them believe it. Let's not ruin what we got going on here. But I will tell you, at the time, I was so embarrassed. I'm like, who? What? What? I've got to say, I've never had a, st- a stadium full of uh, people stare over at me, so I can I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty embarrassing, quite frankly. <laughs> but I used it to my advantage. We definitely uh, won that match center court Wimbledon. You ready for a little mailbag? Yeah. Uh, hey, Jim. I'm, I'm guessing this is kind of coming off of our, uh, the, our qu- third quarter show. You can go back and listen to. Really want to do a, a great job of using the time off with my family in the summer and the third quarter. How can I best protect my weekends and vacations from getting eaten up by work phone calls, texts, and emails? I think the first thing is to really have a blueprint of your time off. Uh, to visualize, dress, rehearse chronologically how are you going to to do what you ask? What are you going to do? Commit to spending time with your family. Commit to not looking at your phone. Commit to not checking your email. I check my email. If you need to stay connected, if you need to stay connected, check it twice a day. I'm going to check it at 10 a.m. I'm going to check it at 4 p.m. That's it. And it's going to be quick. Uh, I'll send back any emails that are absolutely mandatory and those other emails that aren't important. I'm, uh, it doesn't matter. Now, if you cannot do any emails, well, that would be the best. What else? I'd, I'd stay off the news. I wouldn't watch TV. I wouldn't think about my business. And just get full engaged with the activities of your family. I mean, whatever that might be. If you're fishing, get engaged in fishing. If you're playing softball, get engaged in the moment and um, connect present tense. Look people in the eye long enough to discern eye color. But if you want to have a great vacation, you need a blueprint maybe on how to be a bum and and not think and not work. (laughs) I think that takes a little bit of effort because you got to retrain yourself during that time. I, I know I took two weeks uh, off. Uh, of, of I was still coaching, uh, but doing a lot of things in the office. And um, I kept looking over at my phone like it was talking to me. I put it over in a cadenza. I was down in Mexico and uh, just kind of chilling. And uh, I just kept looking at it, kept looking at me. It was like, oh, my gosh, this thing's alive. And uh, it took me a couple of days to uh, untether my brain from the cell phone. And I, I think you need to commit to that. And, of course, we always go out by looking at the, the score system individually, piece by piece. And this is something that we do with you, with you on the show here but also that you need to be taking with you and checking your score levels, dare I say it, even on vacation, uh, because you know, without optimism when you're on vacation, it's going to be a pretty hard uh, to get into that bum state and really enjoy your time. Yeah, and, and uh, in the mid-90s, I discovered five markers that all of us have as human beings on this planet. We have a high or low level at any given time of self-discipline, and that definitely fluctuates. 
Uh, you can be self-disciplined in business, and then hopefully when you go on vacation, uh, you're self-disciplined in being a vacationer and, and chilling. Uh, but self-discipline is the commitment, the willingness to stay with a task, to reach well-defined goals that take you to a vision. So that definitely fluctuates. The other marker discovered that we all possess is the ability to concentrate. Concentration was the second marker. Um, that'll narrow your focus when you really have a high level of it. You're doing one thing at a time. You're definitely engaged in the moment. You're finishing each task before you move on to a, a, a next one. And then, of course, when you don't have a very high concentration, your, your mind's all over the place. You're not finished not finishing anything. In fact, you may have 10 projects going on at one time. You can have six piles of paper on your desk, and you haven't finished any of them, but you're working on all of them. That's low concentration. You can also have low optimism. We know that. We have free will. So I can be positive. I can be expectant. I, I can have a sense of knowing that I can do this. Oh, or I can have a seed of doubt. I can drop my head. I can shake my head and replay negatives in my mind. And uh, my optimism has jurisdiction over whether I trust what I have is enough. Uh, it has jurisdiction over uh, uh, my self-esteem, what I, I think other people think about me. That, that can rise and fall. And um, optimism, uh, we know the high, the high side of optimism. That's supreme confidence expectancy, knowing. But we also know, as humans, the negative side. Uh, that's when you've got doubt, uh, hopelessness. Um, you know, in uh, a couple of months back, uh, when I was in Ashland, uh, Kentucky, I was in Boyd County, Greenup County, and Eastern Kentucky, I looked in the eyes of a lot of high school students. I did see hopelessness uh, when I asked them, so what are you going to be doing 60 months from now? And looking them in the eye, uh, I saw low optimism, and I know it can change. Uh, and then with talking to them just a little bit, not, not that long, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, I could then look them in the eye and see a glimmer of hope that they believed they could do it. And, and that's why I went down there. I said, you know, I, I was you. I was you. I had that same, I'm not sure I can do it. I'm, I'm a hopeless feeling. So optimism, we know that can fluctuate. And also in the Zone Cafe, we got relaxation. Uh, are you breathing six to eight breaths? Or are you freaked out over 20 breaths a minute? That fluctuates. And then I know our enjoyment level fluctuates. Hopefully we had an enjoyable July uh, 4th uh, when hopefully not many people are working. There's a few, but not many. Uh, but then you get back to reality and uh, – Boom, that enjoyment level can be gone just like that. So you're responsible with your free will of managing self-discipline, concentration, optimism, relaxation, and enjoyment. Uh, it forms a domino-like chain that all of us have. And these five markers rise and fall collectively. Uh, you can have too much or you can have too little of these five markers. And the other thing that's striking, Seth, is these markers trigger natural body chemicals from serotonin to dopamine uh, to glycogen to, to uh, uh, endorphins to cortisol. And uh, 
It's these chemicals that can get you into that peak performance zone state where you've got a feeling nothing can go wrong. And that's the ultimate. So the whole purpose of the Zone Cafe is what's your weak link? What do you need to work on right now? Yeah. And, you know, we have a lot of people that are continuing to be more successful, you know, and listen to the Jim Fannin show. You can outsource a lot of stuff. You can pay somebody to change your oil. <laughs> you know, to to you can delegate a lot of tasks in your business life. But one thing you can never have somebody else do for you is make sure that uh, your mental outlook is taken care of, and that is the Zone Cafe. So here we are. Everybody, pull up your car. You're driving up to the uh, drive-through at the Zone Cafe. We're cooking. S-C-O-R-E, self-discipline, concentration, optimism, relaxation, enjoyment. So what do you need right now? Do you need self-discipline? We got a heaping uh, uh, plate full of self-discipline to help you get uh, uh, some goals, a little more formalized, maybe get your blueprint uh, a little more solidified, or maybe you need some concentration. Maybe you need some single-purpose, single-mindedness. But maybe you need some confidence with your chin up. But maybe you need to chill out a little bit and uh, drop the worry and get rid of the fear. But maybe you need uh, our Happy Meal. Seth, I know you're always cooking the Happy Meal. I am, I am. And and that's having a little pep in your step, a little smile, and uh, some enjoyment, some satisfaction, some pleasure. So, Seth, if you were pulling up to the Zone Cafe, what do you need? You know... I've had a great week. I love 4th of July. I think it's a wonderful holiday. I always enjoy. I'm going to go ahead and uh, and boost up my self-discipline and order that off the menu as I'm ready to get back into uh, you know the second week here, basically, of the third quarter. And I've got some goals. I need some concentration. I, I've got a lot on my plate. Uh, my blueprint is definitely uh, fleshed out uh, for the third quarter. Uh, but there's a couple of linchpin goals that once once those are completed, it's going to open up a floodgate for a lot more things to happen. And I'm going to focus on one of them only, definitely in the next three or four days. And I'm going to lock in like a cheetah that hasn't eaten in two weeks. And I'm going to get her done. I'm going to make it happen. And um uh, Again, I'm going to focus all my energy on just one thing from a business perspective. And and then in some of the other aspects of my life, Seth, here's the cool thing about the score system. You may need self-discipline in one part of your life, but you may need relaxation in a total different part of your life, or maybe need some enjoyment in something else. So you can do this score check. It's an awareness focusing tool. We do it uh, every show, find out what needs to be tweaked, upgraded, or just be aware of. Because when you're aware of what's low, it'll fix it almost 90% of the time. If you want to get in the zone, everyone, then you need to get S-C-O-R-E balanced at its high state. This show is about free will today. We've come off a great Independence Day. Be independent in your thoughts and make this independence worthy of all the positivity you can bring so that you can be your genuine, authentic best self and make your dreams come true. Be in the zone, everybody. 
It's the only place to be. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. You know, if you listen to the show, we talk about this all the time. The mind, the mindset, and what we're now able to do, what technology is allowing us to do in terms of training the brain is incredible. It's never happened before in sport. And let's face it, everybody out there is doing the physical stuff. The physical stuff is very, very easy. There's no question that we know what we're doing when it comes to helping an athlete become faster, higher, stronger, more agile. And the same can be said on the skilled, technical, and tactical side. We have a pretty good idea how that process works. All we really need is the opportunity to work with athletes who want to go through the process, and then time, and plenty of it. Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.